Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullah wa barakatuh. Man has taken on this funny idea that they can somehow appoint people as representatives of God. Or they can somehow anoint people as representatives of God. Representatives of God are only those who somehow become representatives of God by becoming worthy of being representatives of God. So all of these self-made appointments by men lead to a kind of destruction when those appointments are connected to very powerful uh, armies and power. The Islamic religion has a sect of it that used to have a overriding principle that the religious leaders would run the religion and secular leaders would run the country, uh, the politics, the day-to-day business of the country. Recently, that was changed in Iran, uh, where Khomeini basically said that the time has come that the Ayatollahs should also rule the government as opposed to just the religious portion of the country. This went against a very, very long tradition uh, that had been established for a very, very long time. And we can all see what's happening to Iran right now because of that change in policy. Now, personally, I think that the institution of that policy was brilliant. It was one of the first separations of church and state, but not in the same way as we think of it. And why should state be separated from church? Because once the church and the state become combined and the state has arms and becomes powerful, all of a sudden everything that the state does is on behalf of God. And the emotional uh, upheaval that causes among its people and the emotional fervor that that causes among its people leads to what right now and for ages in all religions has been one of the great dangers to the world which is religious fanaticism. So if you combine religious fanaticism with guns you've got a real problem. All of a sudden you're not doing anything the things you're doing are not for power or real estate or wealth or control 
there for God. And then you appoint somebody to be the head of state and you call him a pope or a caliph. And all of a sudden, the person leading this is God representative. God's representative. So now you have God's representative leading an onslaught of war for God. These kinds of mistakes are the kinds of mistakes that lead to the kind of destruction that's in the world right now. Let's look at Sufism and why was Sufism created? What's the need for Sufism? If there's already established religion, why do you need Sufism? Why isn't the religion enough? Well, one of the reasons is that Sufis are very small groups. And for the most part, they don't have political power and they don't have military power. And to make your way towards Allah, you need to be without military needs and without political needs. Because once political needs and military needs enter into the equation, they overwhelm godly needs and godly desires. It's just like if we spend all of our time individually in the pursuit of money or in the pursuit of fame. We can't establish a personal pursuit of God. So we have to make a decision to either pursue God or pursue the world. And Sufism, in its earlier uh, incarnations, was an order not monastic, but like monastic, in that the pursuit was for God and a rejection of the governmental worldly powers, a rejection of the governmental political powers. So the question really comes down to, is there such a thing as organized religion? And does organized religion really make any sense? Or should religion be like the Sufis in small groups with an overriding set of principles yet isolated by themselves, sort of separated from the world, doing what they can do to form a relationship with Allah. We can see easily the dangers that organized religion brings to the world. Um, in Europe, 
the kings used to have themselves ordained as the leaders of the religion. So they wore two hats, the leader of the religion and the leader of the country. But by being the leader of the religion, all of a sudden they had the divine writ. They had the divine ordinance. They had the divine okay. And by having the divine okay, there was no arguing with them. There was no way that you could present a counter to what they were doing because the response was quite simply, this is the divine will and you don't understand. And that's going on in the world right now. And it is incredibly dangerous. Bawa Mohayadeen used to say, and say it often, that the greatest danger to the world is fanaticism. Religious fanaticism. And what the Sufis did is they were fanatic about what they were doing, but they didn't impose it on those around them. They stayed as small groups, and you had to be initiated into the group. So, with our worldview, we have to understand that Sufism is actually a direct alternative to organized religion. This does not mean that that Sufism loses the Shariat. It doesn't mean that at all. It means that the Shariat becomes a personal code of behavior. It is not a code to be enforced on everyone around you. And that's the difference between Sufism and where organized religion goes at its worst. At its worst, organized religion enforces codes of conduct in a overriding and totalitarian, dictatorial type of way. Way beyond what would be considered uh, the law of behavior of people towards each other in society. Why, at the death of Muhammad, did they elect a caliph? Well, one reason is they believed that the prophet, peace and blessings be upon him, didn't appoint a caliph. Question is, can man appoint a caliph? Or is that an unappointable position? Can man appoint a head of a Sufi order? Or is that an unappointable 
position. Do people have to become that, or can they be appointed that? Was Muhammad, peace and blessings be upon him, appointed by man? Was Moses, peace and blessings be upon him, appointed by man? Was Abraham appointed by man? Or did he come into his place somehow other than that, through an appointment by Allah? What I'm trying to say is, be careful of religious leaders who are appointed by men. Because men do not have the capacity necessarily to be divine. And when non-divine men appoint divine leaders, it's a really interesting and profoundly questionable phenomena. But it goes on all the time. In the Conference of the Birds, at the beginning of the book, all of the birds meet. And they have been, they were being instructed by a bird called a hoopoe, who was telling them about the fact that they have a king, etc., And they had actually all met with that intention to appoint a king. And they couldn't decide how to appoint the king. Even though it is self-evident that the hoopoe is the one who knows more than any of them and seems to be guided. So they decide to draw straws. And the hoopoe wins. But the fact that they drew straws and the hoopoe won shows you right at the beginning the divine intervention. Not that drawing straws will necessarily always show divine intervention. This is a book and it's about birds. So (laughs) we, we should remember that. There were people when Bawa was alive, who argued that Bawa had no standing because he didn't have a silsila. A silsila means a genealogy of uh, teachers before him. What the word silsila implies is that these kinds of understanding divine knowledge can be passed on through birth. It's an interesting way to keep the peace. It's an interesting way to keep control. It's an interesting way to keep familial strength together. But the prophet said to his daughter Fatima, at the time of judgment, the fact that you were the prophet's daughter will not aid you, or assist you. So, what's that mean? Why did he say it? It means that each of us stands on our own accomplishments, on our own faith, 
and our own belief system and our own implementation of that belief system in an appropriate way that's in accordance with God's will. Nobody else can do it for you. You've got to do it by yourself. Uh, an old country song. You've got to walk that lonesome valley. You've got to walk that lonesome road. You've got to walk it by yourself. And you do. And the fact that appointed leaders give you titles, give you authorities, doesn't necessarily mean anything unless Allah's will is tied into that also. So, as we look around the world, and as we wonder about the things that are going on in the world, and we look at the legitimacy of the things that are going on in the world, we have to look at the nature and the quality of the person involved in those things. And those qualities will shine and tell the truth. Bawa was often asked, how do you know when you meet a real teacher? And his response was sometimes, if you're thirsty, you need water to quench your thirst. If you're thirsty for divine knowledge, you need somebody with divine knowledge to quench your thirst. So sit around and watch. Sit around and drink. And see if your thirst is quenched. See if you're taken in the right direction. In the world, so many people claim divine heritage. How can you claim divine heritage other than the fact we were all created by the divine? This begins to assume that things like grace can be passed on. That things like justice can be passed on. That things like mercy can be passed on from one to another through their genealogy. Either you are just or you aren't just. Um, the Magna Carta finally began to do away with the divine right of kings. Why? Because it became evident that some of these kings were stone nuts. And the things that they did were abhorrent and had nothing to do with divine right or divine justice. They just had to do with power. And that power claimed its basis through divine right. The difference between power and truth is vast. The difference between power and divinity is vast. But in the world, it becomes confused. In the world, people don't seem 
very often to understand the difference. That which is just is divine. That which is powerful is not necessarily divine or just. It's just that they have at a certain time been able to accumulate power uh, within the world. Um, the leadership in North Korea, how many people would say that it is just? How many people would say that it's divine? Yet the leader of North Korea is treated as if he were God-like, and whatever he says goes without question. Um, it's interesting how a non-religious, a non-God-fearing uh, state based on socialistic and communistic principles ended up creating God-like rulers. But it happened. And it happened because it helps to sustain the state of that country. So what's happened in, in my way of thinking is I have become very skeptical of religious proclamations made by men who attempt to make these proclamations on behalf of others other than themselves and their small community. Um, in essence, the way Islam grew was mosque by mosque, and any man within the congregation could be the imam. But then begin things began to happen, and power became concentrated, and as power becomes concentrated politically, power has to control the religious nature and atmosphere that the politics, uh, that the area that's controlled by the politics. Because without controlling that, you can't control the people. The first thing that Ataturk did when he took over Turkey was he made all of the imams state-appointed and moved them around from location to location every year. Why? So there couldn't be a religious hold on the people that could sway them into political movements. And one of the things that's happened in religion is that it has become political. You know, in America, it is against the law if a religion wants to keep its 5013C status, which means it's non-profit status so it doesn't have to pay taxes, it can't take political stances from the pulpit. If it does, it begins to lose that status because it becomes a political organization. Now, we ourselves have to understand the nature of religion and the nature of a relationship with God. The prophet came, peace and blessings be upon him, and brought the rules 
the shariat. And the shariat is incredibly important for individual sanctity. But when the shariat becomes the tool of the political entity that rules the country, what happens is it becomes formulated into a way that serves its political masters. And we need to really understand that. Saudi Arabia doesn't allow women to drive cars. Where in the Shariat doesn't it allow women to drive cars? What's happened is that religious leaders have become lawyers. And what lawyers do is they bend words to make them suit their clients' needs. And when the religion is tied into the government, all of a sudden the client is the government and the religious leaders have to fulfill the needs of that government. The separation of church and state is a brilliant concept and America wasn't the first to have it. It needs to be sustained so that the sanctity of religion can be sustained. Isn't that interesting? Because if you allowed the two to come connected, religion becomes corrupted. And that's essentially what's happened all over the world where religion has been allowed to become interrelated with the government. So, why can't we appoint divine representatives? Because only the divine can make divine representatives. Only the divine can bring into being ketubs and prophets and friends of God. And the divine has sought to do that and continues to bring his friends, to bring the words to the world. But not because people make them so. Because he makes them so. And so we need to understand that religious proclamations are not necessarily divine proclamations. We have the books, and unfortunately, there are vastly different interpretations of the books because they're so open to interpretation. We need to become the ones who attempt to make our own interpretations, do our own studying, and try to live the right way. Satan travels the world dressed as a religious cleric. 
And we have to be very, very wary of that. So we have to discriminate. And I've also found that as far as looking for answers, one of the best places to look for them is inside of yourself. Go to that place that is still. Go to that place that doesn't have motive. Go to that place that doesn't have need. Go to that place that is without opinion. Go to that place of silence. And in that place where silence is, is the place where you can interface with Allah and the truth will come to you. And believe it. One of the most powerful tools that we have to reach the truth is the belief that we will reach the truth. So our belief has to be like a rock. Our belief has to be powerful and strong. Our belief can't be moved. And our belief must become focused. And all of these things that we do to become pure, to become free of the dunya, the world, to become free of the influences of the world, is so that our belief can become stronger and stronger. So that our focus can become stronger and stronger because we've given up the distractions that do away with our focus. We've given up the distractions that muddy our intentions. We've given up the distractions that muddy our clarity. So as we're free of distractions and we can focus more and more on that silent, empty space, then the truth can reach to us and toward us and influence us and make us that which the divine wishes us to be. May that come to pass for all of us. Amen. Amen. Ya Rabbi Lala. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullah wa barakatuh.